although I don't get out to do it as much as I'd like, something I find great joy in is fly fishing. I've met many wonderful memories of fly fishing, especially back in Montana where I grew up. Uh, in particular, I have many memories of fishing with my good friend Josh, uh, not Josh Scarpo, but a different Josh that I grew up with, who as a teenager was a better fly fisher than I'll ever be. And I remember one trip, he introduced me to a wonderful thing called polarized sunglasses. I just had regular sunglasses, and they worked great in general and kept the sun out of my eyes. But when he let me try his polarized glasses, it not only kept the sun out of my eyes, but it allowed me to see deep into the water. It allowed me to actually see what was going on underneath the surface. Of course, it never really improved my fishing, but for fishers who are skilled, this extra level of visibility is crucial. And similarly, we're going to look at Jonah's prayer with the regular sunglasses on, which will be beneficial and helpful from one angle, but then we're going to put on the polarized sunglasses to have a deeper look beneath the surface to see things from a bit different perspective. But before we get into the text this morning, I think it'd be helpful to do a bit of a review of chapter one. Uh, maybe some of you missed last time. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, for all of us, it's been a while and we forgot something anyway. So either way, it'd be quick to do a quick review. And last time we discussed how Jonah was determined to withhold God's mercy. And it started out with Jonah's great escape. God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, no, thank you, and he fled in the opposite direction. Jonah, being a prophet who had pre previously been the one to prophesy God's blessing to Israel by expanding its borders, was now asked to go preach against Nineveh. He must go condemn Nineveh, which wasn't a very common thing for a prophet of God uh, to go proclaim a message from God to non-Israelites. And initially, you might think that Jonah would have been fine with that. After all, he hated Nineveh. Nineveh was a main city in Assyria, and Israel and Assyria had lots and lots of tension and conflict. So why wouldn't Jonah, who wants to see the Israel, Israel's prosperity, want to condemn one of the most wicked cities in ancient times? Well, if you remember from last time, he didn't want to go preach against Nineveh because he knew the character of God. He knew that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. So he knew that if he went and proclaimed God's message of condemnation against Nineveh, it may very well not result in destruction, but mercy and rescue. And Jonah had no time for that. He had no desire to see God's mercy extended toward an enemy of God's people, so he fled. He got on a ship headed to Tarshish, which was the complete opposite direction of Nineveh, and as we saw, this was not just a physical departure or fleeing, but also, and more importantly, a spiritual rebellion and dissent. At the beginning, God says to Jonah, Get up, go to Nineveh. Their evil has come up before me. So Jonah got up. And once he flees to Tarshish, everything goes downhill. Jonah went down, not up, but down, down to Joppa to find a, a ship. Then he went down into the ship to go with them. And now in the midst of this raging storm, Jonah has gone down to the lowest parts of the vessel. And he's stretched out and fallen asleep. God said, get up. Jonah went down further and further into disobedience. And as we saw, his disobedience was not without consequence. God responds by throwing a storm so violent it threatens to break the ship apart of course, Jonah had no clue um, because he's in the belly of the ship sleeping. 
And yet actually doesn't wake up until the captain comes and wakes him up with words eerily similar to God's earlier commands. Get up, Jonah. Call on your God. And we also saw what we called the surprising reversal. Jonah descended down into disobedience and away from God. And it ended up being the pagan sailors who were drawn closer to God and did many of the things that God's prophet Jonah should have done. Jonah is silent while the sailors pray. The sailors fear God while Jonah is apathetic. The sailors show compassion while Jonah is selfish. And at the end of chapter 1, it's the sailors who are actually offering sacrifices and worshiping God. Jonah does nothing right in the first chapter. He's selfish, disobedient, avoiding God, apathetic, and apparently so determined to keep going the direction of obedience that chapter 2 ends with him being thrown into the sea by the sailors. Sailors, of course, did everything they could to avoid this. At the very least, Jonah did admit that he was the reason for the storm and assured the sailors if they threw him overboard, the storm would stop. And that's exactly what happened. Sailors pick up this defiant prophet of God and throw him into the sea because that's what Jonah told them to do. And that's where we left off in chapter 1. And this morning we have a lesson in responding to rescue. A lesson to responding to rescue. And we see this in two parts. First, describing the crisis and deliverance. And second, an appropriate assessment. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going we're gonna to kind of go through this in two passes um, today. And, and on the first point, we'll do one and then, and then another on the second. But before we get to Jonah's prayer, let's look at how he was actually rescued. It actually happened so quick you could almost miss it, but, but very casually at the end of chapter 1 we're told, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And then in verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Two verses, that's it. And this particular aspect of the book of Jonah is obviously very well known. Uh, Chances are pretty good, even if you ask some random person on the street walking by, they would have heard of this story. And of course, for anyone who spent time in church, the story may be so familiar that it's easy to forget how astonishing uh, what happened really is. I mean, try try for a moment to put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Just imagine yourself on on an old wooden ship being tossed about by the most intense storm you've ever seen. You're soaked, you're tired, you're probably quite scared and you're thrown into this raging sea. And and at that point, the only thing he was confident of was that he was going to die. Right? Jonah's final act of disobedience, he'd rather drown in the sea than be reconciled to God. So he's thrown into this cold sea, and and most likely Jonah was not a great swimmer, but, but either way, as we see in the next verses, he starts sinking deep into the sea. And right before he dies, a giant fish swallows him. Which is just crazy, right? I'm not sure what Jonah was thinking in that exact moment, but I know if I was drowning in the sea and a giant fish opened its mouth to swallow me, as I entered the fish, I would not be thinking, oh great, I'm being rescued, right? I, I, would, I would think I'm dying. But God's not done with Jonah. In chapter 1, we saw God throw a storm at the sea. Jonah ultimately responds by having the sailors throw him into the sea, And now we continue to see God's sovereign hand as he commanded, or you could translate it, appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. Remember what Jonah was doing back in in verse 3 of chapter 1? 
We talked about Jonah was going down. Jonah started going down. And his journey down coincides with his spiritual descent deeper and deeper into disobedience. And the literary sophistication of this should not be lost on us. Jonah went down to Joppa to find a ship. He went down into the ship to go with them. And now in the midst of the raging storm, Jonah has gone down to the lowest parts, or very literally translated, the bowels of the vessel. It stretched out and fallen asleep. But God knows, in order for Jonah to hit rock bottom, he must descend even further down. So God appoints his own vessel that also has a belly that will go even further down than the belly of the ship. And Jonah is going to spend some time there, right? Three days, 72 hours, which no matter how you measure, that's a long time to be in the belly of a fish right? Jonah is swallowed by a fish, and I guess eventually, after being swallowed, he kind of settles in this area that is the fish's belly, and realizes, like, wow, I'm still alive. And he he must have had some space, right? He air to breathe, I guess. He was there for three days. I would assume it's very dark, couldn't see anything, complete absence of light, which, let's be honest, is probably for the best, because Before and probably during, while Jonah was there, the fish probably had some meals that would accompany Jonah in the belly, right? So it's dark, it's wet. Can you imagine the smell? I mean, I, I would assume like humans, fish have some sort of acid in their belly to help them break down food. Who knows what that did to Jonah's skin? Probably started to break it down a bit. And then three days later, we're reminded that God is still orchestrating all of this. In verse 10, the Lord commands the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So God rescues Jonah in a very unorthodox and surprising way. He went from drowning in the depths of the sea to standing on dry land, all by way of a fish that God appointed for this specific task. And we'll return to Jonah standing on the dry land after this ordeal in a bit, but the bulk of this section focuses on not how Jonah was rescued by the fish, but what happened while Jonah was in the fish. Jonah prays, and there's much we can learn from Jonah's prayer. So we we have a lesson in responding to rescue. In this first pass, we'll look at how Jonah describes his crisis and deliverance. Verse 1, chapter 2. Here we see that Jonah finally finally turns to God in prayer. Jonah prays to God from the belly of the fish. And while he starts his prayer, we actually see that that he also must have prayed while in the water. In verse 2, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. So Jonah enters a sea defiant, rebelling against God, but as he enters the waters and realizes he is moments away from death, at the very bottom he decides to call out to God. So it seems that while Jonah was drowning in the sea, he finally decides to pray to God. Probably a quick one. How quick, you know, how long can it be if you're drowning? And then once he's in the belly of the fish, he prays again to reflect on how God heard his prayer and rescued him. And this is the prayer we find in chapter 2. And what we see in this prayer of thanksgiving is that it starts by reflecting on the exact circumstances and crisis that he was rescued from. And what we find is this this prayer really kind of pauses the narrative, right? 
All through chapter 1, we are on the outside hearing about the account of how Jonah fled from God. But here, the narrative pauses and, and we, have, we shift to being able to see what's going on in Jonah's heart. And so we realize, even from a, an interpretive perspective, we, we move here from narrative to poetry. And so we take it as poetry. This prayer actually fits quite well as a psalm, right? Jonah's prayer reads just like a psalm. In fact, there, there are parts of it that are almost identical to different psalms. We'll talk about that a bit more later. But, what, but we find that Jonah, he, he settles into the belly of the fish and he prays. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Then verse 2, I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. He cries out from deep inside Sheol or in some translations the belly of Sheol. This place, Sheol, generally refers to the place of the dead. And we can see by his description of his circumstances that he was indeed very near death. Verse 3, he says, He'd been thrown into the heart of the sea. He's overcome by waves and current, billows and breakers sweeping over him. So these massive sea waves crashing into him, sweeping over him, getting pulled down by the current. Verse 5, the water engulfs him up to the neck. The watery depths overcame him, seaweed wrapped around his head and his neck, sinking down to the foundations of the mountains in verse 6. We can see the vivid picture he's painting. He's adding layer after layer of description of the horrifying near-drowning experience that he had. I've, I've never been close to drowning, maybe some of you have, but we can see from Jonah's description, it's a very helpless feeling. And humanly speaking, he has absolutely no reason to hope. Even if he managed to reach the surface, what's he going to do? He's in the middle of the sea, miles and miles from dry land. He has no reason to think he'll survive. And while Jonah paints a very real picture for us of his very real situation, he also paints, paints a picture of our situation as well, right? Doesn't this describe our spiritual situation apart from Christ? Helpless, hopeless, Drowning in a sea of destruction because of our sinful and disobedient rebellion against God? We're in need of rescue as well. And sometimes God uses difficult circumstances in our lives to bring us back to him. Jonah is aware that if it had not been for God's direct, miraculous intervention, he would be dead. And this is how it is sometimes, isn't it? It's easy not to see sinful patterns in our lives when things are going well. But when everything goes wrong, when it seems like there's no hope, we can suddenly become aware of our rebellion and apathy toward God. God often uses these circumstances to draw people to himself as they become born again, but he also uses times like this to bring back his own wandering children, like Jonah, and sometimes like us. And as we reflect on Jonah's prayer here, it's worth pausing to think through some things that we can learn from this regarding prayer. So here are three I'm sure there are more, but here, here are three quick reflections on what we can learn. The first is time and location. The second, personal experience. And third, source of content. So first, time and location. When and where is it appropriate to pray? Maybe you've had some kind of assumption or ideas of where it's appropriate to, to pray before meals at a dinner table, in the morning, before bed in church. Um, hopefully you can think of many times and places it's appropriate to pray. So maybe the better question is, when is it not appropriate to pray? 
Jonah, while in the midst of drowning in the sea, rightly concludes it was a good time to cry out to God. In the belly of the fish, yeah, that works too. Jonah prays while he's there, Lord, help me, as he's drowning, right? Probably not a very long prayer. Our prayers don't have to be long. Maybe we pray between questions at a job interview, when you're feeling anxious about something before walking into work for the day, and your child's screaming. Don't let yourself be bound by specific times and locations for prayer. You can pray anytime or any place, as we see, even in a fish. Second, personal experience. Jonah's prayer is very personal as he specifically references his particular situation and crisis. Now, this shouldn't be the only thing we have in our prayer, but it can be a very legitimate aspect of our prayer. And this is not unique to Jonah. For example, David, David is very uh, personal and descriptive in his near-death experience in Psalm 18. And we too can recall our very particular circumstances to God while we pray. Part of how we process difficult things when we're going through is, is talking about what happened so we can experience the emotion that comes with it and process our feelings and emotions in a way that's helpful and fosters growth rather, rather than bitterness. This is how we have good relationships, right, with each other. We tell each other about the good and difficult things we experience. And this can be part of our prayer life as we have relationship with God. And third, source of content. And this is a great balance to personal experience. Though Jonah is praying through his personal experience, his prayer reminds us of the Psalms. Actually, some of his lines are very similar. Jonah 2, 3, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. Psalm 121, in my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. And there are more examples, but what is evident is that Jonah's default in prayer are the Psalms that he has saturated his heart and mind with. So while Jonah's content is personal experience, it's also scripture. Sometimes when we're going through something difficult, it can be hard to know what to say, and that's fine. Because like Jonah, we should, we should, we should borrow from the Psalms and other parts of the Bible to inform our prayers. So we can pray anywhere, anytime. Don't be afraid to be personal in your prayer and pray the Bible. All right, so, so this was the first pass of a lesson in responding to rescue. And uh, now we'll do the second pass, an appropriate assessment. I'm sure at least some of you have been to a car show at some point in your life. While growing up, car shows were a, a family affair for the Panchos. Uh, my family went to all sorts of car shows and car museums. Uh, and sometimes while at car shows, my dad would slowly walk past me while looking at a car and say, that's a 50-50 car. Which was a quick way of saying, 50 feet away, that's a good looking car. 50 inches away, I need some work. And of course, what he meant by that was from a distance, it was a nice car. But when he got up close to give it an assessment, look under the hood, it still needed some work. And as we work through this prayer again, we're going to look beyond just the words of Jonah's prayer and take a look under the hood to see his heart behind it. And as you'll start to see, while Jonah's prayer is good, I wouldn't say it's great, given the context. And don't get me wrong, as I said, it's a good prayer. It's an orthodox prayer, but it's also an oblivious prayer. Orthodox, but oblivious. And why would I say that? Well, if, if, if all we had was Jonah's prayer, no context at all, 
no chapter 1, 3, or 4, it would be fine. But we do have context. And because of the context we have, it affords us the ability to learn even more from Jonah's prayer. And as you'll start to see, there are a few areas where it seems Jonah is a bit oblivious as to whether or not some of the content of his prayer is appropriate. So verse 2 says, I called out to the Lord in my distress. You notice anything? Later on in Jonah's prayer, we've already seen Jonah gets very personal about his experience drowning, which is good. Something Jonah does not do here. It's very impersonal. I called out to the Lord in my distress. Really, Jonah? Distress? Let's talk about your distress for a minute, right? Why are you, Jonah, in distress? Does your distress have anything to do with the fact that you attempted to flee from God's presence and did the exact opposite of what he commanded you to do? Jonah's not wrong. He is in distress. But only labeling it as distress is a fancy way of refusing to take responsibility for what he's done. What if he replaced it with rebellion? I call out to the Lord in my rebellion, in my disobedience, in my sin. That's a bit more accurate. Now, there are many times as Christians that difficult, hard, very sad circumstances come upon us. But it's not because of some particular sin we've committed. It's a result of living in a broken world. However, sometimes difficult and hard circumstances do come upon us because of very specific sins we got tangled up in. There is consequence for sin. Christ dealt with, atoned for, was punished for our sin, and he dealt with our sin completely and finally. So we know that. So so if you're someone who who struggles with, with a short temper and is prone to anger and rage, did Christ pay for that sin? Yes. Is there going to be consequence for that sin here and now in this life with how people see you, interact with you? Yes. Your struggle with gossip. Did Christ pay for that sin? Absolutely. Is there going to be consequence for that sin in this life in your relationships? Absolutely. And this is such a helpful thing to, to be mindful of. When we're in the midst of fallout due to our rebellion, do we call it distress or do we call it what it is? See, it's not just an issue of being impersonal here. It also lacks confession. If we allow ourselves to think of our sin in terms of distress, hardship, inconvenience, then on a heart level, we have yet to truly grieve our sin. And if we don't truly grieve our sin, then we're not going to be in a place to confess our sin and ultimately repent of our sin. At no point in this prayer does Jonah confess or repent of his sin. And given the situation, it seems like now would be a pretty good time to confess and repent before God. So we ask ourselves, how are we doing with that? Are we making excuses for our sin? It's easy to do. We can even cloak our excuses in theology like Jonah does in verse 3. How did you come into this situation, Jonah? Verse 3, you, God, threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas. Again, he's not wrong. Jonah is well aware of God's sovereign hand in all of this. God did throw him into the sea. But also Jonah ran from God, and then rather than repenting, he told the sailors to throw him into the sea. So this is on you, Jonah. He needs to take personal responsibility for the situation. Verse 4, But I said, I have been banished from your sight. Chapter 1, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. 
Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down, to, down in it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah ran from God. He very purposely paid money to board a ship for one reason, to flee from God's presence. Why the avoidance of what really happened? Maybe he was in a hurry? Three days. Spent three days in the fish. He had some time. This dude had some time to think about what he did, right? And an what an appropriate response might be. And I wonder, do we take time to think about our sin? I mean, really sit and think about our sin. And I'm not talking, time to, to, talking about taking time to think about our sin so we feel depressed, hopeless, or like a failure. I'm talking about thinking about our sin in a way that's fruitful. Analyze what happened. Not to write a paper, but to grow in obedience in Christ-likeness. Questions like, what exactly happened? What events led to me falling into this sin? What temptations did I give in to? What patterns or habits in my life could be adjusted to prevent this? Do I think about this in terms of excuses or grief and repentance? Jonah sat in the belly of a fish for three days. And it seems he probably could have been a bit more intentional with analyzing how he was responsible for the events of chapter 1. And lastly, Jonah's arrogance. We see this especially in verse 7 through 9. If you look at verse 7, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. See, Jonah is quick to focus on the fact that when he was near death, he, Jonah, remembered the Lord, rather than focusing on the fact that the Lord remembered him. It's Jonah doing the remembering. In fact, he's quite confident in his own spiritual life at this point. You see that in verse 8 and 9. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. So Jonah speaks of those who cherish worthless idols and abandon their faithful love. Jonah's contrasting himself. On the one hand, there are those who persist in their devotion to worshiping idols, all the while forgetting how the Lord has been merciful to them. And on the other hand, there's Jonah, who promises to make sacrifices and vows to commemorate God's mercy. And of course, we immediately wonder, who are these people who cherish worthless idols? Is, is Jonah speaking of someone specific or maybe just non-Jewish people in general? Well, it seems likely that Jonah actually has the sailors in mind. After all, Jonah was was just on a ship with all these pagan sailors, and, and what was their initial response to the storm? They called out to all their false gods. See, the author is drawing our attention to the irony here. Jonah is declaring with confidence that unlike these pagan sailors who worship false gods and idols, Jonah is going to demonstrate faithfulness to God by making sacrifices and vows. Now, of course, Jonah has no idea, but what did the sailors do after they threw Jonah into the sea and the raging stopped? The men were seized with great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Just like all through chapter 1, the sailors ended up being the ones who did what Jonah should have done. But Jonah doesn't know any of that. He was busy being disobedient and selfish and had the sailors throw him off the ship. So again, 
we, you know, we, we, we get a peek behind the curtain of Jonah's heart to see that even in his prayer of thanksgiving for God rescuing him from the mess he had made, he sets himself apart as special and different from the sailors, who actually were much more God-fearing and faithful than he was. Jonah's focused on talking about his, pers- his, about his spirituality rather than confessing his sin. So now I, I've spent a while really giving, giving Jonah a really hard time about his, his actual approach to God in prayer, right? In a vacuum, Jonah's prayer is orthodox. But in real life, in context, he's oblivious. And we can see that Jonah's heart is not yet where it needs to be. And while his heart need, needs work, he did genuinely call out to God in his distress. He was thankful God heard his prayer. He really was near death, and he's truly thankful that God saved him from drowning. And I really think he genuinely desires to remember God's mercy by making sacrifices and vows. It's easy to be critical, critical of Jonah, especially knowing that even when we get to the end of the book, Jonah still has much to learn. But if we're going to be critical of Jonah, we need to be critical of ourselves as well. I've been guilty of not going before God with a heart of genuine grief, compassion, and repentance, and I'm guessing that you have as well. So let this be an encouragement for all of us to be honest about our sins and thankful for God's rescue when we go before him in prayer. And then we come to verse 10. And just as quickly as the fishy adventure started, it ends. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So for three days, Jonah had been cruising around in the belly of a fish. Then all of a sudden, it raises to the surface and vomits Jonah upon the shore. And again, we, we get used to this story, being familiar with it, but, but stop and think for a second what that must have looked like. A big fish comes to the shore and vomits up a human. The human's still alive. I mean, what, what did Jonah look like laying there on the shore? And can you imagine what he smelled like? I mean, maybe, maybe there's a lucky few of you, but most of us, unfortunately, are familiar with vomit. And, and not only was Jonah covered in it, he spent three days sitting in it. He probably couldn't see very well because his eyes were so used to the complete darkness. He needed some time to adjust. I'm sure he was hungry, thirsty. I'm guessing he didn't eat or drink much in there, right? Can you imagine what the sailors would have said if they saw him again? But here stands God's prophet, hungry, thirsty, smelly, arrogant, and not quite ready to confess his sin. Surely after this, he was known as the man who cheated death, the man who spent three days in the belly of a fish, the man who miraculously rose up from the depths to see life once again. And we come to realize once again that Jonah might have cheated death, but it was his sin that got him there. His prayer may need work, but he certainly got the last line of verse 9 right. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not a fish, not a ship. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's the reminder we need at the end of the day. We can't hang our hope on anything other than the salvation we have in Christ. Jonah came, pitifully, came painfully close to death because of his sin and rebellion, but his life was spared. Jesus actually did die sinless and willingly to pay the price for our sin and rebellion, then rose from the grave. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish because, he was, because God used the fish to save his life. 
Jesus spent three days in the grave because he gave his life to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. While on the fish, Jonah prayed without mention of his need for forgiveness. While on the cross, Jesus prayed God would forgive the people killing him. Jonah is a prophet, but one that needed to be rescued by God because of his sin. Jesus did not need to be rescued because he was the God who came down to rescue us from our sin. So it's Jesus we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking that you would give us hearts that are humble and willing to confess, while at the same time being faithful, thankful, and full of joy for the kindness you have shown to us as we come before you in prayer. Let us be quick to learn from Jonah as we leave here today. Let us be quick to remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. In Christ's name, amen.